Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Okay, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. Round the corner, almost here. Technology. Today, I'm here with Thomas Diederich, uh, professor emeritus at Oregon State University. And Thomas has spent many years in the field of artificial intelligence, especially machine learning. Uh, welcome, Thomas. How are you doing? Very well. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Yeah, it's really, really glad to have you here. Um, very interested to talk about machine learning and uh, where it's been, where it's going. So, if if you wouldn't mind, can you give us a um, a brief overview of the kind of work that you've done in the field and what you're working on right now. Well, I uh, I started out in the field in the late 70s, uh, and it was my advisor uh, for my master's degree, Richard Mikalski, who uh, coined the term machine learning uh, as the name of the field. Um, and so over the years, I've worked on a wide variety of things, uh, everything from trying to use machine learning to design better drug molecules uh, to my most recent focus has been on how we can use machine learning to uh, help uh, preserve endangered species and to control the spread of fire, the spread of disease, things like this. So so I have a lot of collaborations with scientists in, in various areas. Yeah, and in general, it seems like um, people get terms confused. I know people know or they think they know what artificial intelligence is, but what is what is AI versus machine learning? What's the differences? Well, I would say machine learning is one of a uh, technology for trying to help create artificial intelligence. So artificial intelligence is really just an umbrella term for all kinds of different software t- techniques for making uh, computers smarter. So that could be, uh, um, you know, when you use uh, Google driving directions and it finds the shortest path or the best way for you to drive, that's using uh, 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 search algorithms that search through a space of possibilities um, and doesn't really involve any machine learning. Um, whereas uh, machine learning plays a critical role in something like computer vision, where you want to have the computer be able to recognize objects in the world using a camera. And the reason, uh, and maybe one of the reasons for the distinction is if you think mm-hmm. about a search problem like driving or computer chess or something like this, um, uh, when humans do those tasks, they can explain how they do them more or less, right? A chess player can say, well, I consider all ways of moving my pawn and my queen, and, and then I look at, you know, score them according to various rules. Um, right. Or if you're driving a car, you have some idea of how long it takes to go along, you know, the speed limit on each seg- segment of the road and so on. Uh, but when it comes to something like computer vision, uh, if I ask you, you know, when you see uh, your wife, for instance, how do you tell that it's her? What's the first thing you do what, when you're looking at her to, to figure out who it is? The answer is yeah. we don't think about that. We just have this gestalt instant recognition. And it's because huge parts of our brain are really not uh, uh, consciously accessible. We can't introspect on them and understand what's going on. But one thing we can do is we can show the computer many, many examples. So I can, 
ask you, you know, or as people do on Facebook, you know, tell me who each of these people is in this image. And, uh, and so I can give the computer what we call training examples. Here's an input image, and here, here are the objects in the image, and here's a dog, and here's a car, and here's my sister, and so on. And, uh, and then we can use machine learning technologies, for example, deep neural networks, um, to actually learn a computer program that can take, that in, uh, take an image as input and find, say, all the faces in it or, and maybe uh, name all the people and the, and the animals and the chairs and whatever. Um, so that's where we use machine learning to help us build smart software. But, but there are many ways of building smart software. That's just one, one of them. But it has been very... Uh, successful recently because um, for many, many years people had been not having very much success in computer vision and in speech recognition. Uh, mm. And these uh, machine learning techniques have, have uh, broken through those problems and really been able to, to do much better than, than in the past. So now you really can yeah. talk to your smartphone and it can understand you, and that's because uh, machine learning techniques have made that speech recognition system much more accurate. Well, you know, what has happened? Is it computational speed, or are there other factors? What's caused machine learning to now, in the past few years, work a lot better? Well, there, I'd say there are a lot of factors. Um, the Part of it is the discovery of better algorithms, and the, the key algorithms for deep learning were actually uh, invented in the 1990s. So they're really 20 mm -hmm. years old. Um, but, uh, but in the 1990s, we didn't have very much training data for training these systems because the Internet had just been invented and the World Wide Web was really just, just getting started. But now right. we have millions and millions of images uh, that pe pictures people have taken, and they're up on Picasa and on Flickr and Facebook and so on. And, uh, and so we can get millions of, of images with, with uh, objects labeled in them, you know, what they are. Uh, and, uh, and, and then the other thing that's been important is computers have gotten a lot faster. And in particular, you know, the, uh, there is the development of these things called graphical processing units, GPUs, which are specialized mm -hmm. computers for doing computer graphics. So in, in all of your modern uh, computers, you have a GPU chip, which is separate from the main processing, main computer processor. And it's just very good for, for doing video and things on the screen. Well, it turns out people figured out how to program those GPU uh, chips to do uh, machine learning. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so um, now people have these computers with hundreds or thousands of these GPU chips in them, uh, and they're using them for computer vision. So instead of generating images, they're analyzing images. And the two of those things together, big data and much faster computation, were really required to, to get the, the breakthroughs that we're seeing now. But just as an example of big data, okay. you know, with the uh, Google search app on your phone, you can ask it, you know, uh, find me the Wikipedia page on, on Richard Nixon or something. And, uh, right. and, and uh, it will give you a set of search results, and you click on one of them. And, uh, and, and maybe uh, it wasn't sure exactly what you said, but, but it, and so it gave some options. By you clicking, right. you're, you're telling it this was the right link. And so it can use that as a, a way to improve its understanding the next time. And so every day, Google gets millions of examples like this. And putting those all together, the computer gradually gets better uh, at, at doing these tasks. I'm, I'm sure it depends on the problem, but how many 
training sessions or training items are needed for a, uh, a machine learning algorithm to quote unquote get good at its job? It really Millions? does depend a lot uh, because it's really a question of how much variation there is. Uh, so if we think about speech, we have all kinds of different voices, all kinds of different accents. I, you may remember that when I think it was Siri first came out, it couldn't understand Australians uh, because of their accents. Um, mm. And so, uh, uh, and this is this is often a problem if there's a a subpopulation of people that are is that whose data does not show up in these in the training data, then the learned system will not work well for them. Uh, and this could be a big challenge when we come to things like uh, uh, disease diagnosis in medicine, where you know it might be really good at uh, at say people between I, I don't know let's just make up a story here but uh, but maybe it's good for for uh, you know old white rich people because they have doctors that are contributing data to the training system and it's terrible right. for 20 year old uh, African Americans or something because there's no training data in there so that's that's a, a big concern um, when, you know, I mean, the thing about phone apps is most of them, if it doesn't work well, big deal, you can try something else. But if you start to use machine learning in something like medicine and it doesn't work, that's really serious. Uh, so, yeah. you know, I, or or in a self-driving car, I, you know, I, I like to so say Elon it, Musk, a self-driving car is not a, car, is not a phone. And you can't just push updates every week to it like, like you can with a phone. Right, so, right. So is it best to use uh, machine learning for narrow, very focused um, data sets that are in line with with how it learned in the first place? Um, well, we we the right the the predictions that come out or the 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 uh, the understanding that comes out of a machine learning system relies critically on on having uh, that the training data was representative of what the questions will be that, that it has to answer in the future. So the future needs to be like the past. And if things are changing, then typically the machine learning system will start making mistakes. Um, and in fact, one of the areas of my research right now is um, how can uh, we make these machine learning systems more robust to, to surprises mm -hmm. in the future, um, the unknown unknowns. Um, you know, yeah, because they seem... Um very good, but at very narrow things. You know, if you had a sure, machine learn yeah. how to recognize faces, um, and then you wanted it to recognize dogs, it would probably go awry and not work very well because it's outside of the scope. Well, you have to, yeah. So, so yeah, if you had it learned to recognize people faces, it would only recognize a few dog faces, and those would be the ones that looked most like people. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, um, uh, but an interesting thing we're seeing is that. Um, for instance, there's this. Uh, the, we have these competitions, right, uh, to measure yeah. how accurately our systems are going. And there's one called ImageNet, in which there are, are these uh, uh, um, competitions with 1,000 categories of objects, and the uh, they train the the neural networks on these on the training data for these thousand different kinds of objects, and then test it on new data. And um, what what we're finding is that often you can take that neural network that was trained on those thousand classes, and with a very small amount of additional training data, teach it about new new kinds of objects that it hasn't seen before. So it's learning some uh, something in uh, that is transferable knowledge, um, and uh, okay. and and that's very exciting. So for instance, I have a 
scientific project on uh, uh, on trying to recognize insects and classify them by their species, uh, and this is for you know um, uh, uh, assessing the health of of uh, freshwater streams. So completely different okay. from from ImageNet. There are no insects in the ImageNet training data, I don't think. Maybe just bees or something. And uh, and yet we take one of those neural networks that's been trained on ImageNet. We can retrain it with just uh, um, say a hundred examples of our uh, of each of our species, and then it's it's able to do extremely well on on our species. So um, so so uh, what am I trying to say? There are some there's some fundamentally shared aspects of the computer vision task that are transferable, and then there are other parts that are not. And a big research question right now is you know when will this transfer work? When will it not? Um, how can we make it work better, and so on? So, um, can you tell me a little bit about uh, machine learning? If someone wants to try to um, create their own machine learning algorithm, you know, what software is commonly used? How hard is it to do? You know, is there an easy way to kind of dip your toe into this and get started, or is it an sure, extremely you, complex? Uh, thing? There are some very nice packages out there now. So, um, in Python. Uh, there's a, a thing called Scikit-Learn, which is a, a big Python package that's got uh, implementations for a whole range of machine learning algorithms. Um, What's really it called again? Write your own algorithms. What? Scikit-Learn. S-C-I-K-I-T-L-E-A-R-N. Scikit-Learn. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Go ahead. And uh, and there's um, uh, a, a new machine learning package that just came out in for the R uh, statistical programming uh, system. Um, so uh, I think if you and then, and there's also there are some other frameworks like the Weka framework is in Java that's W E K A. Uh, so uh, and then there are specialized frameworks for uh, deep neural networks. Um, Google has one that's probably believe the most popular called TensorFlow. There's a, something else called Cafe, uh, and and so on. So there are many okay. packages. You you de definitely don't need to to write your own. Software, you you need the most of the work in applying machine learning to a new problem is collecting and preparing the data uh, to put it into a form that, that that these methods will work on. So that's that's the mm. big challenge. What kind of forms uh, should the data take, for instance? Well, uh, for a, a, a lot of these packages, will typically read in just data in as comma-separated values. <laughs> so. So okay. that's pretty simple, just like a, an Excel type file. But um, but it's more that uh, you need that the that the columns in that data are are meaningful and are useful for predicting whatever the output is. So if you were doing uh, I don't know, let's just say a medical diagnosis or something, what would you use as the symptoms that you're going to put as input to to this to this machine learning algorithm? Um, and what if uh, you have uh, records where some of those uh, symptoms were not measured? Maybe they took the guy's temperature, but they never did a throat culture, or they didn't take his blood pressure, or whatever. So um, okay. you have lots of issues with incomplete data, and and maybe there, and and then you, getting the ground truth for each example can be quite challenging. If you're doing image data. Uh, they don't use comma-separated values for that. They typically use a specialized image format as input, like uh, uh, you know PNGs or JPEGs or something. Uh, 
So what are what are some um, things you've seen people do right and wrong when trying to set up a, a machine learning system that will make it work or fail? Um, let's see. Uh, one problem is, uh, is, is creating what we call leakage. <laughs> so um, uh, the uh, – what would be a good example? Um, sometimes they, in, you put into the inputs – something that's actually uh, giving unfair information about the output. And, and you think your classifier is working really well, but in fact, uh, it's just discovered some trick. Um, so uh, there's a famous uh, incident of this uh, in which a data set was collected. This was, the, I think, the Army was funding research on could they use computers to detect whether there was a tank uh, hiding in, in some trees in a forest. Mm. And... Uh, and so they, uh, to collect the data, they had, one day they were able to, you know, borrow a tank and drive it out into the forest and take lots of pictures of it in different positions. And then uh, on, on a different day, they went out and photographed the forest with no tank in it. Well, um, it turned out that it was cloudier on one day and sunnier on the other. And what the, when they presented these data to the machine learning algorithm, it just looked at the sky and used that to figure out whether there was a tank in the forest or not, right? So uh, that's okay. a, a classic mistake that um, that the way you collected the data somehow secretly encoded uh, the answer. Um, huh. And 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 uh, and this is a famous example we we teach in, in introductory classes. And yet I and my research have made this same mistake on on another occasion. And it's just so you know, like it's a real head smacker. I can't believe that I screwed up because we were photographing our insects. Um, uh, under a microscope, uh, and the insects are in uh, alcohol uh, solution, and we would uh, quite—it was quite natural. Uh, we had the someone had had separated out all the insects from each species and put them into separate containers, and so right. we would come in and take all the the species from one, all the insects from one species, and photograph them on Monday, and on Tuesday we do another species, and on Wednesday we do another, and there would be something different about the microscope setup, like little bubbles in the corners that would di be different on the different days and it was like a barcode that the computer vision algorithm could nail in and say, ah, I know the species because I recognize the bubbles. So, cool. you know, that this is the kind of thing that uh, just drives us nuts. Um, so it sounds like it's critical to have all the same conditions and the only thing that varies is the data you want to analyze. Yeah, the real thing, yes, right, yeah. Like any good lab experiment or science experiment, exactly. you want to have a true comparison. Exactly. Okay, it makes sense. Um, I'm not sure if you understand the computer side or the algorithm side, but how literally does a piece of code analyze data and make decisions like this and quote-unquote learn? What does learning well, look like in code? Yeah, well, the... Um What's the right way to? I mean, th these algorithms are basically looking for patterns in the data that uh, that 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 uh, give that that predict the, the desired outcome. So, uh, uh, what would be a good example? Um, I don't know. Uh, let's say we were trying to tell different uh, different uh, makes of cars apart. Uh, you know, is this a Ford versus a Chevrolet? Um, so uh, the the computer vision system, if you just give it pictures, it's it's going to um, 
maybe discover things like uh, recognize windows and doors and wheels and so on, but it's not going to find those to be uh, because they sort of appear. Uh, it, it finds these parts of the image that it, that are that are that reappear all the time, um, hmm. and uh, and but but it may find that there's not much information in those to tell it about the make and the model, but 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 maybe it zeroes in on the like the front grill work uh, because that that seems to be something that, that carries the, the the different information. So maybe the spacing of the grills and the the uh, sort of the texture. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, you could ask. Uh, I don't know when yeah, I was the number of years fins. old. I could tell you. I could tell you yeah. the make and model of every car that went by because you know at that, I was at that at that age I was an expert on this task. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it would be like the shape of the headlights, the spacing of the grill, the number of fins, the yeah. angle even, between. Even maybe the uh, you know the hubcaps and and of course if you had a really high resolution image maybe you can actually read the the. Uh, you know that it's a Camaro, and so you you can actually might be able to read the letters. But um, uh, so so it's it's kind of looking for patterns. So what does that look like in code? Well, um, one way to think about it is that it's 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 uh, building a kind of dictionary of little sub images. This isn't strictly correct, but but you can sort of one way to think about it is that if you if you imagined um, dividing the Im the the picture up into a bunch of patches of pixels say, you know, 20 by 20 or 30 by 30 patches and making and, and creating a dictionary of, of all the patches that you see repeatedly, uh, right. then, um, then you can describe the image in terms of which dictionary words are showing up in that image and how many times they're showing up in that image. Um, and in fact, until about 2007, 2000, actually maybe up to 2012, this was how computer vision systems literally worked. They built a dictionary of what they called keywords uh, or key points, and they would match those against the image and turn the image into sort of like a, we called it a bag of words, but just a how many times did each of these patches show up. And then, and then they used hmm. statistics that would say, well, if I see five of these and 12 of these and zero of these, then it's a, Camar it's a Chevrolet. And if I see, you know, 10 of these and... and 15 of these, then it's a Ford or something. So um, it kind of would turn into uh, adding up uh, evidence in favor of each of the of the classes. Okay. Um, but but now with deep neural networks, the network learns. Uh, we call them filters, but it learns um, something like these dictionary patterns, uh, and uh, but 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 they're more they're better tuned. To the actual uh, task than the ones that we tried to design by hand. So the the big step was to let the computer do the whole thing and not uh, have have a mix of hands designing parts of it and then having the machine learning just do the last bit. Yeah, can you overteach and have Absolutely. too much so, data? So yeah, one of the um, uh, really surprising things to me in in, in about machine learning is that. Um, it's possible to learn too well in some sense. If you, if I give you a collection of training data points, um, if you just literally memorize those points, you could get them 100% correct. So you know, like let's say I'm trying to teach it to recognize my sister, I could give it 10 pictures of my sister, and it could memorize them exactly. But now when I give it a new picture, it won't match any of those exactly, and so it won't know what it is. So it's like mm. over-specialized on just those 10 pictures. And maybe the lighting was the same in them, and or maybe she had her hair a different way, or whatever it was. Right? She was wearing glasses in one and not in the other. 
Um, right. So, uh, so uh, we we call this the problem of overfitting because we we fit our model too well to the training data, and then it does not generalize well to the test data. And so, a common mistake in another common mistake is to um, uh, fit your data too well, and this could include uh, when in these packages, there are often you know 50 or even 100 different learning algorithms. If you try all of them and and see which one gives the most accurate predictions, you're overfitting because you're using your your evaluation data to make a decision. So if you want to get a completely independent, when you're doing machine learning, you want to have a completely independent way of assessing the final accuracy of your system, and you can't make any design decisions based on that. You have to hold some of your data out and use it only for the final test of the system. Or have a source where you're getting new data all the time, so, so you always have fresh data to, to evaluate your system on. Um, well, what's reasonable to expect, you know, percentage-wise of uh, a machine, quote-unquote, being right, correctly doing well, its task? Well, that, that's, that's often a problem. We don't know very well. Like, uh, um, you know, uh, there was a recent paper that came out of Europe someplace, I can't remember where now, uh, saying that they, they had trained, a, a, used a machine learning system to predict the outcome of certain uh, legal uh, judicial decisions by some mm. European courts. And they, said, they, said, they published a paper saying we can get them 79% correct. Right. And, uh, and they actually got quite a lot of uh, buzz out of this but uh, but I didn't see you know is 79% good, is it bad? Uh, I mean if this were death penalty cases and you were wrong 21% of the time I think we would think that was horrible, right? Right. Because yeah. one out of five of the people we put to death would be wrong would be innocent. So um, so what level of accuracy do we need and how do we measure that? And uh, and we typically rely on having on using people as the gold standard. So for instance if I had been doing that judicial study I would have uh, the computer was reading just the text of the legal arguments and then predicting what the judge would say. Give the legal arguments to, say, law school, second-year law school students and see if they can predict what the judge says. And, and you know, maybe they can only do that 60% of the time, in which case that would be pretty cool. Cause, uh, but maybe they can do it 95% of the time, and then we'd be super disappointed that this machine learning system was so bad. Right? Mm. So we, we always need some kind of a performance baseline um, because we don't, otherwise we, you know, we don't know how well people do it. I mean, on some things like object recognition, you know, language understanding, people are really good, and so we know that, that at least humans can do this thing very well. Um, right. But on some of these other things that are more, I don't know, artificial tasks that aren't the result of evolution and you know millions of years of of, uh, of biology, um, like legal decisions or, I don't know, uh, credit scoring or something like that. Yeah, we really don't know what, what is reasonable to expect. What does it look like as the machine learns and it gets to, you know, I'm not saying it'll get to 100% right, but does it um, well, we usually asymptotically approach it? Yeah, we, call, we call it the learning curve, right? And so uh, we, we measure, um, you know, for say giving giving the computer uh, progressively more and more data, uh, so maybe we give it a hundred examples, five hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, and so on, and we measure how well it can it can uh, make predictions on new data, and that will usually plot a curve that rises quickly and then starts to level off, 
and uh, and levels off at some point, and then you've kind of, at least for that algorithm, done the best that you can do. Um, so you know, unlike in uh, everyday speech, when we say, "Oh, this problem has a steep learning curve," that's exactly what we want—a steep learning curve that goes up really fast, and then uh, and and levels off. Uh, uh, so that's a case where the the everyday saying has actually got it backwards. The hard problems are the ones where the learning curve is just slowly, slowly increasing. Uh, okay. So are yeah, and, any, and as um... I say, on a new problem, we just don't know what to expect because uh, right. we just don't know how hard. The, the decision is, uh, yeah. Um, if, if someone wants to tackle a, a particular problem, are there any bolt-on systems that would speed them along? You know, let's say natural language processing, um, image processing. Are there modules out there that you can take of, uh, you know, pre-programmed or pre-learned um, machines that you can just use? Well, Let's for, say natural language processing. I, I don't know about speech. I'm not as well informed there. But in computer vision, for something like object recognition, uh, they, there are now these pre-trained neural nets that have been trained on this ImageNet data set or on uh, Microsoft's COCO data set. And you can download, download these. Uh, they're just up on the web. And the source code for, for working with them is all available, too. So, um, so you can just pull these. And that's what we did with our insect project is we pulled the existing network and then we just uh, retrained the last uh, two layers of the network uh, on new data. And, huh. and so, uh, so that's, that's pretty direct. But, but that's, you know, for specific, uh, the problem of object recognition. Um, right. Now, if you wanted to do, uh, it is important to emphasize that each of, each of these, um, that, that the way uh, artificial intelligence researchers tend to look at the world as it's a bunch of individual tasks. So if we think about with images, we might be trying to, say, detect objects, like detect a face, or, or we might be want to actually say, whose face is that, which is face recognition. Uh, and not, as the press always says, facial recognition. It's face recognition because we're recognizing faces, not facials. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know how that got propagated in the press, but... Um, uh, hmm. Uh, and 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 we might be interested actually in something more, which is um, maybe we want to recognize uh, act, some kind of an activity in a video, like uh, you know is um, is someone uh, trying to to uh, break into an ATM machine using and you had surveillance right. video, or are they using it correctly, or maybe are they running into some kind of problem trying to use this machine, and uh, maybe the repair people should be alerted that it looks like. Something's going wrong, or so. For those, uh, you're not going to just take the ImageNet thing and use them because now you're really looking at a sequence of images in a video, and and you need different techniques for that. Um, and another challenge is sometimes uh, you know it's sufficient just to say somewhere in this image there's a dog. Uh, right. But there's another thing to say well exactly where in the image is the dog and which which pixels belong to the dog and which ones belong to, I don't know, uh, his collar and his leash and the, and the dog dish and his owner who's standing in front of him and, and stuff like that. So that's more sometimes called scene understanding. And sometimes you want to do much higher level work. So like my, my colleague Alan Fern has been trying to use computer vision to understand football, American football. Hmm. So, okay. Uh, you know, ideally you would like to figure out, well, when did the play begin? Like, when was the ball snapped? And 
uh, track each player as they're moving around and who carried the ball and was this a pass or a run and, and what kind of play, what, you know, and, and if it, did it succeed, did it fail, who screwed up, who, who, who did what they were supposed to, you know. Um, right. And, uh, I mean, actually, I think relatively few people can actually do that, <laughs> uh, like for every player. You know, that's, that's something coaches do is they, they can look at everybody at once and, and, uh, and do that kind of thing. But, um, but this is really beyond uh, any, what any computer can do right now. Yeah, no, that leads to, you know, speculation. So do you think that um, in the near future, the next, you know, 10, 20 years, that we're going to create a system that uh, will be dangerous to humans or will truly exceed their capacities? Well, we already have systems that exceed human capacity, right? I mean, the best chess playing program is much better than the best human. Um and, and uh, you know, for that matter, I mean, we built computers because they could do better calculations than humans could do. So, so that there's not, um, uh, I don't think there's any kind of threshold where, you know, they cross it and suddenly they, they become sentient and take over the world. Uh, that's, that's, a, <laughs> that's a science fiction story. Um, mm. But, but, but uh, could, could we, I mean, computers will be dangerous to people because we program them incorrectly somehow right and so uh uh i mean it it, it could be uh, a flaw in the self-driving car software that that causes people to have accidents it could right. be um i mean something like the you know the 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 storyline in 2001 a space odyssey uh the hal 9000 is just doing what it had been programmed to do it, they the programmers had had told it to give top priority to the mission and right. they omitted to say you know, the first law of robotics is you're not allowed to harm people. <laughs> so they didn't right. program it with uh, to put a value on human life. And so it, when 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 a conflict arose, it uh, it 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 uh, d took the logical step of uh, of uh, of killing the crew. So right. um, so the big problem is, as with all software, getting the software to be doing the right thing. How do we program these systems? And we know we struggle with that with traditional software all the time. I mean, the apps on my phone are constantly crashing, and I have to reboot yeah. my machine all the time. Um, so, uh, so that should make us very, um, uh, uh, what's the right word, hesitant maybe about mm, uh, putting AI, uh, can, uh, well, putting any kind of software system in charge of, of life and death situations. Uh, I mean, we do that in in the autopilots in aircraft, but that software is very, very carefully developed, right? Extremely right. carefully done and very carefully tested. And it is not built with machine learning. The thing about machine learning is that it only gives you a kind of statistical guarantee, right? It It's right 95% of the time, but 5% of the time it screws up. And uh, And so... We need when you put it into a system, you have to somehow deal with that fact that it's going to be imperfect, and and code some sort of safety backups, and and you'd really like the machine learning system to be able to say, I'm predicting this, but I'm not very confident, or I'm predicting this and I'm I'm really confident, and uh, right. and maybe be able to analyze why it's confident or not, and and say, well, uh, you know, in situations like this, it often makes a mistake. Uh, whereas in these other situations, it's pretty reliable. So, um, so, so for these kind of safety critical applications, I think we're not. The technology is not ready. Uh, neither the technology nor the software engineering.
practice? Uh, how do we test and debug these systems? It's still very uh, raw technology. Um, and so I think it's best used in, in uh, fail-safe you know, applications like speech recognition for web search where you can, you know, you have time to look at it and decide whether it was right or not. And so right. stuff in human timescales, if we, if we think about, say, automated weapon systems or ultra-high-speed trading on Wall Street, these are very dangerous, yeah. and we've seen failures in them. Um, so, uh, so that's the biggest risk right now is I think people are so excited about this technology, and people are kind of racing different kinds of products to market, and, uh, and, and I think we'll, you know, if, if there's going to be a big backlash if, if, uh, if, if a lot of mistakes get made. And, uh, Makes sense, yeah. And Especially think, when uh, yeah, life and death when, is involved. When, so. when electrical appliances were developed and and fires were were created, the insurance companies insisted on creating the underwriters' laboratories, which would test all of these products and set design rules and so on for them. And I I I suspect that you know maybe ten, maybe twenty years from now, maybe but maybe sooner, we need to think about what would be kind of the underwriters' laboratory for. AI systems. How could we test them and certify that that they were safe? Right. Um, and this is this is still a research question. And several groups now around the world, uh, some of them including us, funded by Elon Musk, um, are looking into this question. And how could we um, how can we guarantee safety or or at least greatly enhance the the safety of the systems? Nothing was ever perfect, but um, but 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 we have a ways to go to get to to uh, you know three or four nines of, of reliability. Okay. Well, well, very good. Um, that's all my questions for now. Is there anything I should have asked you that we didn't cover? Uh, I, yeah, I, I think we covered ev uh, pretty much everything. Um, okay. Yeah, I think it's pretty good. Yeah, for, um, for people listening that want to get in touch with you, maybe um, offer some consulting, that type of thing. I don't know if you're interested um you know, if you just want people to know about your work, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you or to see uh, papers that you put out? Well, my papers are all online on my website, so you can go to my website and my contact information is there. So, uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, my, so the, the, the challenge is that my name is spelled strangely, so it's D-I-E-T-T-E-R-I-C-H. But if you, if you Google that, you'll, yep. you'll find it. Okay, and um, just so people know, what what is your website? Uh, I'm I'm at Oregon State University, so uh, um, do I even remember the URL? Sorry. Oh, on the university's website. Okay, uh, you know, people can it, find that. So it's uh, web.engr.oregonstate.edu/tilde-pgd. But it's much easier to just Google me. Okay. Well, very good. Yeah, I really appreciate it. This is a very interesting interview. learned a lot of things, and I appreciate your time. Okay, well, uh, it was a pleasure, and uh, perhaps we'll get a chance to talk again sometime. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.